Good morning, God's people. It's a blessing to be gathered with you to sit under God's word together. I am uh, battling a cold this week, so I'm hoping I won't sniffle my way through this or cough my way through it, but we will see. Just bear with me. Be patient, gracious, I hope. Uh, Today we are coming to Exodus chapter 13, so if you would go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles. To be able to gather to hear God's word read and preached uh, alongside of these glorious songs that we sing to God. We sing to him in praise as Will was talking uh, earlier when we gathered to pray. We gathered to pray this morning. Uh, just the richness of these songs that have been carefully selected. And I'm, I'm thankful for Jared, uh, who has done a lot of work to gather these songs into what we call a canon. Uh, not that we will never do any other song, but that these songs are, are particularly those that we have deemed glorifying to God and those that build us up in our faith and those that we want to pass on to the next generation to teach our children so that there's a body of songs uh, that Week in and week out, month in, month out, year in and year out, our kids are hearing, we're hearing, and it's a form of catechism as we are learning these glorious truths and these songs that that we will sing to God in moments of great distress. You know, each of us is going to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and in that hour, whenever it's coming for each of us, uh, we want to have good songs in our minds. We want to have songs of praise that we can give to God rather than words of grumbling and discontent. So here we are today in Exodus chapter 13. This is the second part of a two-part sermon entitled Exodus Ordinances. And we are in that little space right now in Exodus between the Exodus itself and the Red Sea, (coughs) the Red Sea crossing. So we're between the Exodus and the Red Sea. God has struck Egypt with the 10th plague as an act of judgment, killing the firstborn of their people and animals. We read about that. God has protected his people from that judgment through the blood of the Passover lamb. So as God is carrying out the 10th plague, he is at the same time passing over the sins of his people. As he looks upon the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of each house, Put there by the Israelites, as he sees that blood, he passes over their sin, the holy God, and he strikes the Egyptians. God has brought his people Israel out of Egypt. We've seen the beginning of the Exodus. The Exodus is still underway, but we've seen the beginning of it. Uh, Over two million people leaving Egypt with many, many animals, this massive load of people leaving Egypt and many other people, not Israelites, are with them. So a mixed multitude goes out with them, Egyptians and others who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all leaving in this mass, really, expulsion as Pharaoh and the people of Egypt are urging the Israelites to go. Pharaoh forces them out and the people gladly give them all these riches saying, just leave. Take what you want, just leave. So we know 
after reading all of these things that we've come to so far, we know that the next big scene that we're coming to is the Red Sea crossing. That's the next big thing. And that will function really as the capstone of all the plagues because it will be the definitive act of God's judgment on Egypt where God will part the sea and bring his people through on dry ground and where he will also bury the Egyptian army with water. You know, the the Red Sea image is much like the cross. It is a picture of great salvation and great judgment. What happened at the cross? God was saving us through the blood of Christ. We, We look at the cross and we see this wonderful moment of salvation, this wonderful act of salvation as Christ there accomplishes. As we read earlier, it is finished. He accomplished our redemption. And yet at the same time, At the cross, we see this horrific act of judgment. What is happening at the cross? God is pouring out his wrath on Jesus Christ. He is pouring out his holy judgment. He is crushing his son in order to save us. So we see salvation and judgment in the same event. And that's the case. We've seen with the plagues and we will see with the Red Sea. But where are we now? <coughs> where are we at this point in Exodus? We are in this little space between the Exodus and the Red Sea, where Moses gives the people what I have called Exodus ordinances. These are commands and commemorations. God has set up three ordinances to remember the Exodus. Three things that whereby the people will be able to constantly keep before their minds the events that I just described in the Exodus. Three means by which he will continually lock the events of the Exodus in the minds and hearts of his people. Where God's works are locked into our hearts, God is locked into our hearts. We see God's mighty deeds and we give him praise. A mind and a heart that is void of God's acts, that is void of God's mighty deeds, is a mind and a heart that will not give God glory. And once again, I always like to put a plug in for Bible reading. Uh, This is where we come to know what God has done. It's not just general and vague. It's not just something that we sort of experientially define. But God has told us what he's done. And we are to rehearse it and meditate upon it day and night. And constantly have it before our minds. That the Lord himself will be locked before our eyes. That God himself will be constantly the object of our affections. These are ordinances... Because they are commands of God. God does not make this optional. He doesn't say if you feel like doing this, then do it. Or every once in a while, God tells them you must do this. These are requirements. These are ordinances of the Lord. And they are memorials because their purpose is to help the people remember. They are ordinances and memorials. And so we started to look at these last week, these three Exodus ordinances. And uh, we, you'll see them up here on the screen. Last week, we looked at the Passover meal. And we just spent our entire time looking at that. And today, we'll look in chapter 13, verses 1 to 16, at the latter two. 
the Unleavened Bread Festival and the Firstborn Consecration. But you may have read through Exodus before. I can remember years ago reading through Exodus and thinking this was kind of a weird point in the book. You know, you're reading through and you've got all of these events, you've got all of these actions, these things that are happening, this narrative that's intense and dramatic. And then all of a sudden, there are, there's this talk of this, the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and this final one about the firstborn. It almost seems like uh, a, a little bit of a bump in the road. You have to kind of work around. But it is meant to lock what we have already seen into the minds of the people. So today we're going to look at the last two. If you would, go ahead and stand with me at this point. We're going to read God's word together. We're just going to start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. And we'll read up through verse 16, stopping before that glorious passage about pillars of cloud and fire that lead the people. Of course, we know uh, around the corner is the parting of the Red Sea. So here we are, Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And we're going to see him now depart from this particular ordinance, come back to it later. But in between, he's going to treat the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason for this, the effect of this, is it ties these two together. That's another reason I'm taking these two together in the sermon today, is because even the way they're written here, they're tied together. So now verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. (coughs) Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Now, in verse 11, he circles back to the firstborn. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, 
the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace as we come to his word, as we sit under it, as we come to the teaching and preaching of his word, which God has ordained as a way that his people are built up. So let's pray that he will do that among us today. Heavenly Father, (coughs) Lord God, we bow before you, before your holy face, before your throne. Lord, we recognize your power, your goodness, your greatness, your holiness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Lord, your faithfulness. So many things that we could give you praise for. We thank you above all that you have made yourself our Father. That we come before you as our Abba, as your children. Lord, you are Abba, Father our daddy. And Lord, we come to you as humble, vulnerable children and we ask you, Father, to guide us, your people, today that you, the great shepherd, would guide our hearts today through your truth. That you would show us what it means to walk in your ways. What it means not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. What it means to purge evil from our lives and to pursue holiness and godliness. Lord, help us to grow in self-control and in love, in kindness and mercy. Lord, we pray today that you would help us to listen well. And Lord, that you would take these very obscure practices of an ancient people, your people, and you would make them relevant to us through the teaching of your word, that your spirit would make them relevant to us as he pricks our hearts and shows us your glory. Father, above all, that we would see the weight of your glory, that we would feel the weight of your glory, recognizing that that word glory in Hebrew, kavod, it means weight. God, help us feel this weight. God, help us see you and be in awe of you and love you and delight in you to be so enamored with you that nothing that this world has to offer will compete with you in our hearts. God, we recognize that this morning we are uh, easily led astray. We're easily tossed to and fro. Those who think they stand are easily brought down low. Father, we recognize This morning, how weak and vulnerable we are to Satan's attacks. And we pray that you would strengthen us through this time of teaching in your word. We pray that you would encourage us and lift us up and help us to put on your armor to fight in the strength of Christ's might. Lord, help us to persevere in prayer and to be led by the Spirit. Thank you, Father 
for time together as Christian people, for time together as your children, time together to encourage one another. We pray that our time here praising you and learning from you and being together would be mutually edifying and that we would leave here today better equipped to serve you, to make you known in the world. Please be with us now, Lord, as we take in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we'll see, the description of each of these two ordinances runs parallel to the other. So these last two, and you probably picked up on that as we were reading through, that the description of the Unleavened Bread Festival and the, the consecration of the firstborn, they're parallel accounts. The same topics are being carried through in each of these. Each is given the same structure. But probably the most striking repeated element is this reference to God's power in delivering his people. So let me just show you how, how this shows up throughout the passage. So verse 3 For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Then verse 9. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And then verse 14. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then finally, verse 16. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So we could say that these words are like the glue that holds together chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. So if you start to get lost today, if you start to sort of uh, zone out or fog over or whatever, uh, just go back there. Because that's the repeated element. By the hand of the Lord. The hand of strength. God's mighty power. His mighty power. Hand. This is the glue that holds together the entire passage. And these words make abundantly clear what the people are to celebrate and remember. So what is it? God's saving power. That's the point. That's the point of the Exodus. That's the point of the 10th plague. That's the point of the Passover. All of that, that whole complex of events that are meant to be remembered through these ordinances. What is in view, simply put, is God's saving power. God's saving power is, of course, a great theme of the New Testament. And in particular, it is a great theme of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I want to just take a moment and let you see how this plays out. This idea of power, God's saving power, shows up. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 17 to 20. And by the way, it shows up in Paul's prayers. When Paul is praying for those people, he thinks of God's power. When we are praying for other people, we should be thinking of God's power, praying for ourselves. What's on our minds? God's power. And that's what we see in Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. He prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Follow follow these words. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and here we go, know what? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And here's something else that Paul prays that they will know. 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Not a little bit of power, but the immeasurable greatness of God's power to the believer, towards the believer, in the believer. And then he says this to qualify what kind of power he's talking about according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then we get the same sort of language again in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, where Paul prays once again that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, listen to the power language, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and here we go again, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So why do I read all of that from Ephesians as we're going through the Exodus? Well, it's because as we go back and look at the story of the Exodus, as I've said and as I've prayed, this seems distant to us. It seems unrelated to us on the surface. And it would be easy for us just to kind of think, here we go. One of those feasts, right? Uh, and, and, and just to not think about it and to not appropriate it. But what we see here is the same emphasis on God's mighty power. This same emphasis on God's strong hand in saving us. The power that we are reading about in the Exodus is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it is the same power that saved us and that is now at work within us as we grow in and live out the Christian life. So, you know, sometimes we just sort of flop around like a fish out of water. We just stumble along like someone beaten up with really no cognizance of God's power, no recognition of the fact that this great power that we're reading about in the Exodus, that we read about in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this great power we're reading about here is at work in our lives, at work in every moment of temptation, at work every time we pray, and at work even when we're not thinking about the Lord. This power is at work in us. This is his great might. So as we see God's power on display in the Exodus, we are meant to go there in our minds. We're meant to take heart in the midst of our trials, knowing that God's power is present, right? God is sovereign. Whatever the trial, God is sovereign. He's in control and he's perfectly able to make this all go away in a second. And sometimes we've seen him do that, right? He is powerful, He is able in the midst of our trials and he's able to make us holy. Whatever it is, you know, maybe you feel more like a victim of your sin than a perpetrator. And you're here this morning, you're beat up over your sin. You just keep doing the same thing. You keep falling into the same trap. Know this, God's great exodus power, plague power, resurrection power is at work to help us overcome Every temptation from Satan. 
anything that Satan could bring our way, God has provided a way of escape. And he has given us all that we need for life and godliness and the fruit of the Spirit, all that we have within us by God's grace to overcome sin. Sin will have no dominion over you, Paul says. And we know that in God's strength, we can live out this life. We can grow in holiness and we can serve God in selflessness and love. So that being said, I want us now to come to this second Exodus ordinance, the Unleavened Bread Festival, as we see these commemorations of God's great power, the power of his hand. So the Unleavened Bread Festival. Here, Moses revisits a topic that he's already discussed back in chapter 12, verses 14 to 20. This feast is one of the ways Israel will remember God's saving power. And so let me just give you three words to help guide us through this. There's three words that you can write down if you'd like, just to help kind of act, as I said before, as stepping stones through this portion as we think about this unleavened bread festival. So here they are, preparation, observance, and remembrance. Preparation, observance, and remembrance. So first, preparation. Look at verses three to five. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So Moses begins by giving a general statement of what the people are to do. They are to remember God's saving power in the Exodus. They are to keep this particular feast in which they do not eat leavened bread or bread with yeast. And they are to keep this service in this month, the month of Aviv, now the first month of the Hebrew year. And so Passover is meant to mark the beginning of the year. We remember the lambs were selected on the 10th day and then on the 14th day at twilight as it's rolling over into the 15th day, the lambs are to be sacrificed. This is the beginning of the month. It, it orients the entire Hebrew calendar. Because in a sense, the beginning of the nation is here. Uh, we know that God's people came into, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came into Egypt as a family. And they grew and they grew and they grew and they became a people. But now God is going to establish them as a nation. And the Passover marks the beginning of this reset. The beginning of this new chapter in the story. But what I want you to see is that the emphasis here falls on these words in verse 5. When the Lord brings you into the land. God is preparing his people to enter the promised land. And that's why I've called this preparation. What is God doing? He's preparing his people with these exodus ordinances to enter into this land of promise. God will call his people to be a distinctive people and a remembering people. Let me just stop there for a moment. That's what we are as Christians. We are a distinctive people and a remembering people. We are always to be separate from the world. Now, obviously, 
uh, as Paul told the Corinthians, we, we would have to go out of the world entirely and live in a cave somewhere if we were to, to flee from sin because there are sinners all around us. We ourselves are sinners saved by God's grace. But we recognize that we are to be a distinctive people. Though we live in the midst of a world filled with sin, we are to be holy. We are to be salt and light. We are the sons of light. We are to be like our Father in heaven. God is preparing his people to be a distinctive people in the way that they function in relation to God and not to get swept up in all of the pagan festivals of the peoples, but to have their own festivals focused on the worship of the one true God. And they are to be a remembering people just as we are, those constantly remembering the saving work of our God. He reminds them, of his oath, which he swore to your fathers to give you. And he is specific about the various peoples who live in the land of Canaan, echoing early on Genesis 15, when God promised Abraham that he would go into, that his descendants would go into a land. And he named the specific peoples. And here we once again have the specific peoples being mentioned. He is telling them, my promises are being fulfilled. You will be coming into the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Prepare yourselves to enter into your promised inheritance. This is a preparation. I want to read to you a quote from one commentator, John McKay, uh, an excellent commentator on Exodus. Let me read to you what he writes on this point. They are called to look to the future with confidence. What awaits them is not just a hoped-for prospect to which much uncertainty still attaches, but something so assuredly granted by the Lord that it is even now time to set out their responsibilities when they get there. Nothing was more certain to boost their faith than the fact that the discussion is based on a when, not an if. Think about that for our lives. In the same way, As we live out the Christian life, as God calls us to a certain way of life, we recognize that what lies ahead for us is not a matter of if. We're not not sitting around going, I hope it works out for me. I hope in the end everything goes well. That's not the mindset of a Christian. The mindset of a Christian is that it will go well. It is well with my soul now because it will go well forever. Guaranteed. Eternally so. It is not a matter of if. As we press into the Christian life, as we obey God's commands, it is a matter of when. Whenever we die, whenever the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we don't know the answer to those questions, but we know they're coming. We have the utmost confidence God gives us the utmost confidence in his word. And so preparation is the first stepping stone. Second, we have observation. Look at verses six, I mean, I'm sorry, observance. Look at verses six to seven for observance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. 
And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. As we've already seen back in chapter 12, this unleavened bread festival is to last for seven days. And there is to be a culminating feast on the final day. And we read right there, there's also a feast on the first day. Uh, they're, They're not supposed to work on the first day, not supposed to work on the last day. But for seven days, they are not to eat unleavened bread. Seven days without, they are not to eat leavened bread. Seven days without bread with yeast. Before we read that yeast was not to be anywhere in the house. Remember that? As they were practicing that very first Passover, they were not to have yeast in their bread, yes, but they were also not to have yeast anywhere in their houses. And here we are told that no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Uh, The leaven is gone. The leaven is out. Nowhere to be found. This is what the people are To observe the unleavened bread is a reminder of how God brought them out of Egypt in haste before there was time for yeast to be added and the dough to rise. But also, this unleavened bread reminds the people that they are to break with Egypt. All the false religion that they had picked up in Egypt is that old leaven. And we know the ancient Egyptians were incredibly religious people. Every aspect of their lives infused with religion. And of course, this would have had an effect on the Israelites as they were there for 400 years. Just imagine all the ways that the traditions and the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had come down and become polluted as they've lived among all of this pagan idolatry. All of this that they had picked up in Egypt is that old leaven not to be carried over into this new batch of dough. This is a fresh batch, bringing nothing from that past experience. It must be purged. And now they are to serve God alone. Now, when we talked about this feast of unleavened bread, which once again seems so distant to us as Christians living today, when we talked about that earlier in chapter 12, I referred to a very important passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And so if you're asking the question, how do we appropriate this idea of the feast of unleavened bread? How do we observe this? Paul gives us the answer there. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. There, there's one among them engaged in sexual immorality and they seem to be quite okay with it. And they're even boasting, I suppose, in their graciousness with this individual. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, which is exactly what God was commanding Israel to do. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. This is a Gentile bunch. And he's telling them, let us therefore celebrate the festival. 
So there is a sense in which we celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. How do we do that? As Paul is explaining here, we recognize Christ as our Passover lamb. We put away the old way of life. You remember it? Oh, yeah. You remember it? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You remember when you were a child of wrath, like all the rest? Do you remember when you walked according to the course of this world? The prince of the power of the air. Do you remember when you bowed to Satan in love of self? Do you remember when all the pleasures of the world and its comforts were really your God? Collectively. Do you remember when God was not your God? All those deeds, all that leaven from that life is to be put away. All of that. Think this morning. What in your life remains now? What's the nastiness, the darkness, the rottenness in your bones that's from that old way of life? Christian, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old Leaven. Put the temper of the old man away. Put the lust of the old man away. Put the idolatry and the cravings of the old man or woman away. Put the laziness and the purposelessness and the boredom and the despair of the old person away. And live now and unleavened life. So Paul calls them, or Moses calls them, Paul calls us all to this observance. And third, we come to the remembrance. So we see the preparation for them to enter the land. We see the observance itself. What are they supposed to do? And then now we come to the remembrance. Look at verses eight to 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. (coughs) And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Here, Moses describes how this observance is to function as a memorial. It will be in the mouths of parents. It will be right upon the lips of mom and dad. Isn't it sad? In the Old Testament, in the Kings, isn't it sad how we see these fathers who walk with the Lord, who worship Yahweh, only for his son to become a wicked idolater. We see it. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it with Eli's sons at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Not in the mouths of the parents. It is to be in the mouths of the parents. God does not promise us that he's going to save our children. But may it be that they hear always from our mouths about his glory. 
May it not be that we are walking through this life in a lazy fashion, in a distracted fashion, serving mammon, trying to stack up a life for ourselves, only for our children to go after Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth, to go after Zeus and Apollo, to go after the gods of the 21st century. May it be on our lips. May it be on our mouths. We have no promise from the Lord in his sovereign grace that he will save our kids. But with great hope, we teach our kids and we cry out to God that he will save them in his mercy. It will be in the mouths of parents as they instruct their children, as fathers tell their sons of God's mighty deeds in bringing them out of Egypt. Notice the first person language here. What the Lord did for me. You see that? What the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This instruction to the next generation is to be personal in nature and tone. This is not a distant God who did a general act of saving. This is a God who saved me. It's a God who saved me. This is how we talk with our children about the Lord. It's not just, oh, see his greatness. Listen to the doctrines. Know the story. Yes, yes, and yes. But all of that comes from a heart that says, God saved me. He was merciful to me. May he be merciful to you, my son. May he be merciful to you, my daughter, as he was merciful to me. He brought me out of that old life of darkness and slavery, of hopelessness. May he bring you out in the same way. Moses likens this remembrance to a note on the hand. This interesting, very evocative language to a note on the hand and between the eyes. Now, if I'm not careful, I will be overcome by sticky notes. In fact, I, I try very hard not to buy sticky notes and just to keep a larger sheet of paper I can write everything down on because literally I will have sticky notes everywhere and then I'll just ignore them because they're everywhere. They become normal, a normal part of my environment. These notes on the mirror and on the sink and on the steering wheel and on the computer and on the TV and on the microwave and the coffee maker and so forth. Well, this is similar to what we find here. These notes always before their eyes. Like a note on the hand and between the eyes. This observance of the feast of unleavened bread is to function in that way. Imagine if you had a sticky note right on your forehead. Or maybe you were wearing a little hat. And at the end of the hat you had a sticky note there. So that you could actually see it. And then you look down and you see it on your hand. This is the imagery. It's incredibly vivid. This observance of the feast is to function in that way. Bringing the mind year by year to the saving power of the Lord. 
in order that God's truth may not depart from their lips. Look at verse nine, the end of it. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You know, we have great assurance that where the Lord's word is before our eyes, it will come out of our mouth. We have great assurance that the more we look upon God's truth, and take it in, the more it will begin to show up in our speech, in how we live, in what we do. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Secondly, we come to the firstborn consecration, or I should say thirdly, in this larger list, we come, we've looked at the Passover meal We've seen the Unleavened Bread Festival, the second ordinance or memorial. And then finally, as we close this morning, the firstborn consecration. As with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we can also work through this ordinance with the same three words. So I'm going to give you the same template. I'm going to give you the same three-word outline, preparation, observance, and remembrance. But now we're going to apply it to this other ordinance. They're parallel accounts. So first, preparation. Look at verses 1 to 2 and then drop down to 11 to the first part of 12. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate or sanctify or set apart as holy. That's what that means. Set apart as holy to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Well, all of them. Are his, right? All of us are his. But we see here this very specific consecration of the firstborn. And then verses 11 to 12a. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. So once again, we are given a general overview of the ordinance with a focus on preparing the people for the land. You see that? With the last one, the last ordinance, the preparation of the people for entering the land. Here we see it once again. (coughs) This consecration of the firstborn for all the people is put in relation to the land. Look at verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. Once again, it is certain. God swore an God swore on oath, and as it says here, he shall give it to you. I just want to reflect on this for a moment again. I think this reminds us that God calls us to action out of promise and hope. So any instruction that the Lord calls you to as a Christian, any command that God gives you, and there are many commands in Scripture, Uh, Some people act as though uh, we just sort of float around without being commanded by God. Specifically, God gives us many imperatives, commands from Scripture. Do this. Do not do that. We see many commands. But what we marvel at is that all of these commands... All of these actions that God calls us to are enveloped by promise and hope. 
every one of them rises out of God's promise and the hope that we have in God. All of his commands to us in scripture are wrapped in this way, in faithful promises and a certain hope. And here's what happens. If you start obeying, and I put that in scare quotes, if you start obeying the Lord without a context of promise and hope, guess what? You're not really obeying the Lord. You're just sort of walking in some kind of legalism. You're just sort of walking in some kind of self-righteousness. All the things that we do for God should be coming up out of, should be wrapped entirely in. We should actually, as we're doing it, have to take the time to unwrap it in our minds, wrapped in promise and hope. The faithful promises of the Lord and a certain future. And that's what we find here. God's not just throwing commands at his people. He's throwing commands at them in the context of what he has told them he will do and the certainty of that coming to pass. So preparation. Second, here we see observance again. Look at verses 12b to 13. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now we get more specificity as to how this observance is to play out. What are the people required to do with regard to all that first opens the womb? Well, we're given here three categories. First, clean animals. They are to be sacrificed, period. Uh, the, The firstborn of clean animals is to be taken and sacrificed to the Lord. Second, unclean animals. Like donkeys, for example. Those domestic animals which God has declared unclean or unfit for sacrifice. They are to be redeemed with a clean animal, specifically with a lamb. They are to be redeemed. They are to be ransomed. A substitute is put in their place. But what the Israelites must never do, notice this, is ignore the ordinance. Do you see that? What they must never do is ignore the ordinance. So if they are unable to redeem it, they must kill it by breaking its neck. It belongs to the Lord. It is the firstborn. They don't have the option of just keeping the firstborn. It's either sacrificed, if it's an animal, or it is redeemed with a sacrificial animal. But I want to focus our attention on this third category, and that is the firstborn of people. Every firstborn of man... Among your sons you shall redeem. Later in Numbers chapter 3 and 18, we learn that the price of redemption is five sanctuary shekels. That's the redemption price for every firstborn son. Also in Numbers, we see that rather than make all the firstborn God's special servants, The Lord appoints the Levites to serve in the place of all the firstborn of the people. So Will read that to us this morning. When you have a firstborn child, you redeem that, in ancient Israel, you redeem that firstborn son with this ransom price. And the Levites as a whole constitute uh, 
the substitute for all of the firstborn among the people. This is important for us to know as we think about biblical history, as we think about what's going on with all the sacrifices and so forth. The Levites are taken by God as an entire group of people to substitute for the firstborn of every single family that otherwise would have had to come and serve at the tabernacle or later the temple. So what are we to do with this? Well, here we are given the concept of redemption. You see this idea. The payment of a price. The ransom of a person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What was the price That we were bought with. You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a bought person. You're purchased. You're redeemed. These aren't just Bible words. Redeemed, ransomed, just a synonym for being saved. Well, yes, in part, but it's more specific than that. When we call ourselves God's redeemed, when we call ourselves God's ransomed people, immediately our minds should go to price. Price. What's the price paid to redeem us, to buy us back? 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. How can we give our eyes over to wickedness? How can we give these hands over to sin? How can we use this tongue to cut and slice and gossip and tear down other people when this tongue and these hands and these eyes were bought with the blood of Christ? We're bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. Every single Christian sitting in here this morning is purchased by Christ's redeeming blood. All of us who call ourselves and truly are believers. So we see the observance and then finally the remembrance. Look at verses 14 to 16. And when in time to come, Your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, therefore, therefore. You know how many many times Paul uses the word therefore in his epistles? Well, hear all of that here. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. This is where the passage ends. Here again, we get this emphasis on teaching the next generation. Through catechism, question and answer, and through instruction, 
Well, why do we do this, Dad? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you, son. God powerfully saved us out of slavery. Pharaoh would not listen. His heart was so hard to the Lord. So Yahweh, our God, struck down all the firstborn of people and animals. So, So this is what we do. Because God did that, this is what we do, son. We sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But our firstborn sons, we redeem. We ransom with a payment. God didn't take our firstborn. When he came through Egypt, he didn't take our firstborn. He took the firstborn of the Egyptians. He saw the blood and he passed over our firstborn. He didn't strike us. So we offer them back to him in worship. He, he kept them alive. He didn't take them despite our sin, son. So we give them back. We give it all back. He didn't take our firstborn animals. He didn't take our firstborn children. We give them all back to the Lord. He is our maker, the giver of life and our redeemer, the one who delivered us from slavery and destruction. Consider all that we have to say in that regard as Christians who look back upon Christ crucified. Consider all that we have to say to our children about what God has done for us. Yes, he created this world. Yes, he created the sunset and the birds and the ants. And he gave us life. And he gives us days of life. He gives us health and and breath. He gives us things. He takes care of our needs. But he gave us Christ, son, daughter. He gave us Christ. He saved us from slavery and destruction. He has redeemed us, his people. This is to always be on their lips, always on our lips. And once again, we read this language of having it on your hand and between your eyes. These observances function in that way. They hold the people's gaze on the Lord's saving power. And of course, that is where the text ends because that is the whole point. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Fathers, mothers, this is our charge to tell of God's saving power as we obediently and faithfully walk in his ways through this pilgrim life. Every moment of suffering is a moment for our kids to look at us and see that our hope is in God, not in this world. What if God gives us suffering? As the means he uses to save our children. Oh, we don't want that, God. Well, didn't you ask me to save your kids? That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to let your children see your hope in Christ. Through your trials. Through your suffering. That's how I'm going to do it. In my perfect wisdom. Is that what you signed up for? Is that what we've signed up for when we pray? God is wise. He will answer our prayers. He will work in his way. But may it be 
that we tell our kids in every way we can of God's saving power. Don't let the days turn into weeks, years, decades. They're gone. They're gone. They're here now. They're here now. Teach them God's truth. Let them see his glory in your words and in your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for calling us with your word, calling us towards a life of obedience and trust, of great hope in what is to come. (coughs) Lord, we praise you (coughs) that you call us to see What kind of life, what is the character of this Christian life that you have saved us into? And what is the nastiness and darkness and wretchedness and misery of the life that you have saved us from? Father, in your grace right now among all of us gathered here this morning, purge from us those old ways. Show us the ways in which the the leaven is still there. And may we observe this festival because you have commanded it and because it is a means by which we remember your greatness and your saving power. Father, help all of us who are parents. We are so weak. We are so greatly in need of your grace hour by hour, minute by minute. Lord, how incapable we are in ourselves to rightly raise our children. How weak and frail and self-centered and quick-tempered and impatient and lazy we are in ourselves. Father, be merciful to us as parents in this church and help us. Lord, and be merciful to those parents who hear these words today and have regret, remorse, And regret that they did not teach their children. Lord, help them to trust in your sovereignty and to act now in whatever way they can to honor you, to tell of your saving work, to talk with their adult children boldly without fear, and to teach their grandkids and their great-grandkids of your saving power. Lord, May we not waste this little life that you've given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.